This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump! <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the N-word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks, no one but his own kind. The rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Welcome to the November edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. I'm here with Philip Gurevich of The New Yorker and Katie Reife of NYU, etc., to discuss Knight Rider, a novel by Robert Penn Warren. It's actually Robert Penn Warren's first novel. I'm slightly embarrassed to say, Philip, I had never heard of this book before you suggested it. I greatly enjoyed it. Why did you think to assign it? Had you read it long ago? I read it long ago. I read it in um, my second year in college. I had a great course with uh, the Southern writer Lamar Heron on Southern 20th century, mostly 20th century Southern literature. And uh, this was the book he picked by Penn Warren, uh, rightly, I think, assuming that many of us would have read already all the, all the King's Men and know it and be familiar with it, or that we would get around to it otherwise. And also that this is just a really terrific book. It's his first novel. It's amazingly accomplished. And I had remembered it semi-accurately as uh, being, Knight Rider refers to uh, vigilantes riding at night in large groups wearing uh, white masks and white armbands. And I had remembered it as being more specifically clannish rather than... um, uh, what it is, which is about uh, tobacco growers uh, creating an association. But it is about the sort of mounting violence in a unknown but historically accurate episode of Southern history. Um, you did miss a little bit. You told us that it was about the Klan, but that's okay. <laughs> it is about people who ride and do a kind of terrorist violence in the South right. at night. Um, I, 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 yeah. I had remembered it being more explicitly about race, and, and race is running through it, but it's really more just about Southern white men, and obviously the race relations are very much there, and they lurk around in the background. They're not any important black characters, but but you certainly feel like it is a portrait of a certain kind of Southern white life. So let's just stop for a minute and talk about what the book is actually about. This book was written in the late 1930s about a period, an earlier period, I guess, uh, corresponding to when Robert Penn Warren was a kid growing up in this area of – it's set in Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, but an area that included Kentucky and Tennessee where there was all this violence around the tobacco economy in I guess the first decade of the 20th century. But Katie, what, what's what's the book about? I, like now that I've read the book, I feel like I'm kind of a scholar on tobacco prices <laughs> and you know farm politics of this period. 
it sounds when we talk about it like you're going to kill yourself. It's so boring. <laughs> but in fact, um, it's really riveting. It's this an exciting book. book. is like thrilling and riveting. It really is. So when I say that what it's about, I just want to say it way more interesting than it sounds. It's not about tobacco <laughs> it prices. It is not really about tobacco prices. But um, there is a character, uh, Percy Munn, the main kind of Southern man. And it's really about he sort of joins this kind of exciting, shadowy organization, this association that is protecting the tobacco growers and their prices. And um, it's a story of how he is slowly but surely drawn into the kind of mounting violence. And he's sort of an idealistic character starting out. You know, he's got a new wife and he's kind of his life is promising. He's like a promising, upstanding citizen. And it's about how he's drawn into this shadowy, violent world. And yeah, it's not exactly the clan, but it's sort of related to the clan. Um, ironically, his own house gets burned down because he's um, refusing not to hire um, black people to work on the farm. But they end up kind of going to farmers who are not part of this association and sort of threatening them, sometimes burning down their barns, um, doing this sort of violence to them at night, burning down their crops so they can't, or not burning them down. I mean, a kind of rural terrorism. Right. They're rural terrorism. So they're destroying the crops so they have no livelihood of farmers who disagree with them and sort of threatening them, again, wearing these hoods and riding at night. And um, this, the thing that's kind of mesmerizing about this book, and, and it's kind of about how this ends up destroying him and his own life. But what's kind of mesmerizing about it is not just the char- the weird characters we come across in the journey, but how um, completely inside of it we become and how we, and, and part of, I think, why Philip brought it forward as part of the Trump cast is how we understand somebody who enters into what sort of might be seem like this kind of unthinkable level of violence and how he's drawn into it step by step and how it almost seems sort of natural as it gets worse and worse and worse and more out of control and more out of control. Yeah, I did think this book was really relevant for for our show because really when you think about it, it's about white Southerners who are poor but proud who have had a kind of marginal independent existence and who are in the process of being economically displaced, dispossessed by these what were, you know, then the giant faceless corporations, i.e. a tobacco trust, which they feel is treating them unfairly. And the response is for them to overthrow such democracy as there is in in their world in early 20th century Kentucky and become a violent mob. And you see this this character who at the beginning you kind of think is going to be the hero of the book, Percy Munn. But he gets further and further pulled into this. And the thing that is one of the things that's so compelling and horrifying about the book is that he is clearly fulfilled through this violence. He is someone who doesn't really know who he is or what he what he wants to do with his life. He's kind of he's sort of empty and doesn't have a sense of purpose until he becomes the leader of this mob organization. I mean, it's also I mean, in, in some ways, the analogy would be to certain kinds of union stories. Because essentially, although these are small farmers, it is them organizing against the tobacco buyers. The tobacco buyers have been setting the price uh, very low. And they say, if we all band together and say, you can only buy our crops if you buy them through the association, i.e. the union, 
uh, you will uh, we will negotiate a better price for everybody. But it requires everybody to go hungry for a while as they hold back their crops, as they withhold uh, and resist all the efforts of the buyers to buy it for a lower price um, as they get more and more desperate and more and more hungry. And there's a the, – the sense – I mean, there are a couple of places where – I mean, the very first paragraph is, is like a summary of the whole book. Yeah. Um, and and it, it just starts with a, a train coming to a stop in town. It says, when the train slowed at the first jarring application of the brakes, the crowd packed in the aisle of the coach swayed crushingly forward with the grinding heavy momentum of the start of a landslip. Percy Munn, feeling the first pressure as the man behind him lurched into contact, arched his back and tried to brace himself to receive the full impact, which instinctively he knew would come, but he was not braced right. The gathering force which surged up the long aisle behind him like a wave took him and plunged him hard against the back of the next man. He felt his face grind against that shoulder and caught the sour smell and so forth. And so it really is that this is about this this sort of wave of Collective humanity, you which find has yourself no, there. no will, no moral choice. It, it sweeps you along. Oh, I loved how I, I felt like that the way in which he gets swept up in this excitement. So as you said, Jacob, like this sort of slightly powerless kind of feeling like the world is changing without you world. Um, and I love this passage. At some time or other, this is quite early on, during the course of almost every meeting of the board, Mr. Munn himself would feel the general confidence and excitement taking hold of him. That feeling made everything seem so easy, every difficulty so superficial, the future so clear. It was like the sustaining and transforming warmth of liquor in a man's stomach. Huh. And you just, that's how you sort of start to feel. And I loved that sustaining warmth of liquor in a man's stomach as this this kind of camaraderie, this, and, you know, the passage Philip read, the kind of crowd mob feeling going wrong, a little bit wrong, but it's, here it's just exciting, the excitement of being part of something. And, and then it kind of like the train gets out of control. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about Percy Munn a little bit more as a character. I mean, one thing that's curious is that the narrator is, it's narrated pretty much from his perspective, although not from his voice, but the narrator is refers to him as Mr. Munn through the whole book. So there's this distancing from him, but he undergoes this transformation early on. There's this scene where he is not expecting to give a speech at the first meeting of what becomes this association union of the tobacco growers. And he's sort of yanked onto the stage and he ends up finding his voice and give giving this very moving speech about collective action and how together they, they have this authority, authority. And suddenly he's the head of this movement in a way he seems genuinely not to have expected. Well, he's sort of played by the, the – there's a senator, Senator Tolliver. And um, Senator Tolliver sort of spots Percy Munn and, and reads him correctly as a person with capabilities. He's a lawyer. Mm. He's a litigator. Uh, at the beginning of this book, he's involved in a murder trial where he's getting his client off by finding somebody else who 
either he frames or who really did it, but that that remains unclear. At times, it seems like he really is getting an innocent man off, and other he times he thinks he's getting an innocent man off. I mean, if he he he, he the way the I read it was develops. he develops doubts later about right. whether his client was in fact. I read innocent. it that way too. Right, yeah. especially after he ends up killing the innocent man. Yeah. Uh, who he got off because the man crosses the association. Um, I mean, so the person recurs later on as a as an adversary rather than a, a person he believes in. But Percy Munn is sort of set up by this senator who sort of says, come on up here and give it, you know, why don't you just talk to the people out here? And he totally doesn't foresee this and discovers in himself this voice. And uh, the senator is a complicated character in, in, in the book, but there's also, he's the person who in some way forecasts where it's going early on. And he says, he's cautioning Percy Munn about the possibility of the association getting violent. And he says, you know, we got to watch out for extremism. Extremism. In any popular movement, there is a tendency towards extreme action that you don't see. That only needs a leader. They say a ship can burn for days and not much harm done until somebody opens a hatch and the air strikes. A leader is like that. He just opens a hatch. We must guard against the development of any such sentiment. We must keep the hatches down, so to speak. That's what he's saying there. But it's, of course, once he says that, it almost seems like, oh, right, it's inevitable. Now this thing has, in any popular movement, there's this tendency towards violence. And if you're failing in the nonviolent path, then it's going to move that way. And you watch some of the other leadership back away from it as Percy Munn moves deeper into it. And um, it's, it's, it's a very powerful portrait of that, the way that leadership and the group working together and working off each other and sort of stimulating each other along in the way that Katie described, the way they get together and there's this camaraderie. And often in these scenes, it goes inside Percy Munn's head. And when he's there with the inner circle of the, of the association secret leadership, he's, he's often saying, he liked so-and-so. He liked so-and-so. He kept, it keeps being the people that he likes the most. But once the violence released in him, he's in tumult. This Senator Tolliver is interesting because you think that when he gives that this little speech, you think, oh, he's this guy's kind of a pompous windbag. And you're, he's seen as selling out the association to, to make money. But another way of seeing that is that he's unwilling to go along with the violence that the association gives itself over to. And um, part of what I found so compelling about this novel was the lack of anyone who embodies a kind of moral center. Everybody, every character is ambiguous and every character is pulled back and forth particularly Percy, who at the very beginning you, you, you would relate to sympathetically, but then in stages as he begins to, to participate in and lead this violence, he rapes his wife. He ends up committing a murder of this former client. He is having a secret affair with his best friend's daughter. Um, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, and to the end, he he's becomes hollow in a completely different way. I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know if you felt this way, but I think it's sort of, to me, it was a testament to how good this book was that, so after all the things that Jacob describes happens, he's kind of fleeing and you're wondering, is he going to get caught by the authorities? Is he going to finally be punished? And I found myself, in spite of how odious he becomes, kind of not wanting him to get caught. Oh, yeah, you're always rooting you, for the you're fugitive. Rooting for you're him. always you're rooting, rooting for, for the him. fugitive. It's a murder ballot. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think that it's – I don't know about that. I feel like you're rooting for him because there's just a way in which he is c- 
created such a complicated character and he's so much inside his head. You know, as you said, it's like on his, the narrative is on his side mm. that even as he does these odious things, you can't entirely, you know, you don't get like repulsed by him entirely. I saw Philip Cramming reading the ambiguous last paragraph at the end, which you know raised the question of whether the Mounties get their man or or not, uh, or whether I he gets it was himself. Clear. Yeah, I thought it was too. Actually. I mean, he sort of he goes out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, but it sort of seems like he's committing suicide, and then at the end, it sort of twists, and he's been shot by he commits one suicide of these by soldiers. Cop. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he yeah. basically he yeah. stands up to a posse. Yeah, that's that, what it seems. Like. Yeah, yeah and, no, that, that and, was that was my reading, and he knows say. that this way he can sort of stagger off into the woods. I mean, it by the end, it really does have this feeling of a murder ballad, and he starts bringing in more and more of this kind of folkloric element. And there's a long, rather the one most unusual chapter, the chapter that doesn't really fit but is kind of riveting anyway, is this long monologue about uh, somebody he's staying with as a fugitive, just talking about going out and becoming a buffalo hunter and a buffalo That's what I wanted to ask you about. Let's just pause there, because that that character, Willie Proudfoot, when I said there was no moral center to the novel, in a way, this character is a moral center, this Willie Proudfoot, who's this um, poor sort of has gone native as an Indian, living with Indians in the West, was a buffalo hunter and has come back to Kentucky and is harboring Percy as a fugitive. But it's it's a it's a weird long chapter that's like a mini novella, like a short story within the novel. Why is that there? It's very late in the book. It's very long. It's it's quite compelling, but it's a little bit of a just a big big detour. I I you know I don't think it is clear why it's there. I mean it doesn't it doesn't seem to me to fit all that obviously, and it is sort of riveting. But it does feel as if. Um, it's a different direction that Penn Warren's setting off in at that point. It's sort of an, you know, broadly speaking, an imperfection in the novel, right? I mean, it it, it feels like an odd. But it's too big to be an accident, and it was it's it's, not an accident. Yeah. It's, it, it, but it's 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 it just it's like it's its own thing. It's like this strange yeah. aria, you know. It's also it's the only chapter in which Percy Munn is not the central figure. What did what did you think of that, Katie? Well, I agree with you. It was, it was weirdly compelling. I also think you're right that there's like a different moral universe. So he's tr- he's taken out of this place where at least there's like Proudfoot's world is a little more lawless but also makes a little more sense. When a woman comes, this person's daughter who he's having an affair with and is with him at night, he thinks they're going to be really horrified by this. But actually Proudfoot's okay with it because it's sort of a world that's like a little more compassionate and understanding and – and kind of the—I think it serves as a kind of contrast to this other world of, like, actual law. Yeah. I mean, I, I found it interesting. Yeah. It's like a Shakespearean green world or something. It's a, it's a different But, I mean, I think that universe. The, what we get from Willie Proudfit is that Willie Proudfit is a person— who lives by his own code. And all the others are all jostling around on that train, right? Mm. They're all being, really Proudfoot is not being Mm. pushed by the forces of trying to conform to anything. And Percy Munn, he's got this beautiful young wife at first, or anyway, he's fascinated by her, but he's also alienated by her. This is before the rape uh, where he forces himself on her uh, coming home from his first night of murderous violence. And and she leaves him then. I mean, it's not as if uh, it then becomes this, abusive relationship it ends the relationship instantly and um and he's there's so much in the book that's about how people don't know themselves and can never know each other and how the only way that anybody knows themselves is when they're tested by action and then it'll come out 
you will find out in certain moments who they are and what they are, and there's no knowing. And he's he's fascinated by one of these uh, guys in the board of the association who's a, a former civil – he's a Civil War veteran, a Confederate uh, officer uh, who has a sort of legendary stand that he took at a creek, you know, and he's been tested and he's calmer than anybody else all the time. He knows who he is at some deep level. And I think that's what Willie Proudfit represents as somebody who – the other thing is all of the – there's another thing that people insist on is the ethic at that moment is nobody knows themselves, nobody knows anybody else, but nobody tells me what to do. Right. Right. The, to be to be your own man is to nobody ever has told me what to do. I never did, you know, take yes or no from anybody. And and Willie Proudfit is somebody who sort of wandered out there in the world and genuinely lives by his own code and like sort of does no harm, but also doesn't really judge. He says, I don't care if you're on the lamp for killing a man and you really killed him or you really didn't. You know, if you're here, nobody's going to be taken from my house. Katie, let's talk about race in the novel a little bit. I was left a little bit with the feeling I think I've had when reading Robert Penn Warren before that, you know, he was certainly, for a white Southerner of his era, he was certainly enlightened in the sense that he was anti-segregation and and has sympathy for the Negro, as he would have said. But race is context and not text. He's not. This really isn't a novel about race in any meaningful way. There are no. I mean, there's the, the, there is the there is a black character who is accused of murder after when per- Percy's trying to get his client off, and it seems like he was guilty. And then as the, these doubts accumulate, so we're left with the suspicion that basically this black man has been lynched mm. for a murder he probably didn't commit. Um, but that's somehow still not very central to the action. That's that's the, that's the story about what the effect it has on the white protagonist, Percy Munn, rather than a, than a fundamentally a story about injustice in the South, right? I think so. It was a little unclear, um, as you said. I was also unclear whether the Night Riders weren't sort of a a metaphor for yeah. the Ku Klux Klan, and whether it wasn't actually more central to this because it. it and and there and there definitely were other kind of groups that would come at night and threaten people who hired black workers, for instance, at Mun being one of them. Um, so if you refused to, they wanted people to refuse to hire black workers and only hire white people to farm. And um, our night riders are, are defending those people. So the so the so nominally the black workers are on the, are on the side. side of the. But but I had the same feeling. These are not. Isn't this you know a tobacco a like business? A metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it felt a bit like a parable about that. So uh, that on is one thing. And then I also thought that scene. Um, it is sort of tangential. It is sort of on the side where where somebody is framed. Um, and he also tells this wild story about is it a frog or a turtle brings the knife? Yeah. Like a knife is frog. stolen and he says a frog has carried the knife to him. And I think that it it is sort of as he comes to see that he's been framed or may have been framed, it is a deeply ambiguous story. But it is a, it is sort of a sympathetic portrait of this violence against this innocent black man, right. I think. Fundamental, you know, sort of there in the in the woven into the whole story. So... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's not very explicit on race. And his character, Percy Munn, who does seem to be committed to hiring these black people, also doesn't seem to be, like, interested in their rights or anything. He's just sort of doing it. Right. I think what what Penn Warren is giving us is that it is a a sort of systematic, oppressive, and unjust relationship with these black sharecroppers who are Mm. ubiquitous and black 
uh, servants and black uh, waiters and black. There's always a sort of mm. a black attendant um, who's neither a slave nor uh, exactly an employee. They're sort of they're sharecroppers. They're mm. people who owe labor. They're servants. They're servants, they're but servants. they're but they're also resident servants of a of a certain kind. I mean, they live. They're always you know they live out on the quarters. They have. Uh, the black cabins, uh, the the Negroes' cabins are out behind these people's houses and so forth there, and and um, on their land. So they're sharecroppers, but they're basically it's the backdrop of this southern life, right? In other words, these are very very poor farmers. A lot of them, they're pretty uneducated, pretty hillbilly. Essentially, is a lot of what the characters are. These these tobacco farmers, except for the people on the board of the association, the farmers themselves, and yet there's always this other class below. And they're always in the background. But it's not explicitly about the relationships between them. Yeah. Um, that's not what he's engaging with here. And I think it wouldn't have been something that the people then were talking about. What's interesting is that there are these two groups of Knight Rider, and it's ambiguous when Percy Munn's house is burnt down, as, as Katie mentioned. It's ambiguous who's doing that. Is this being done uh, as a way of sort of trying to stir up a racial tension against the association leaders? And you so you sort of threaten them and say, because it's mostly aimed at people in the association saying, you got to have only white sharecroppers. You got to drive your black sharecroppers off of here. And when they don't, they get attacked. Their houses get burned down. They lose their farms. That's a different group than their group of vigilantes who are attacking farmers who don't comply with them and, of course, ultimately in their biggest almost military action, uh, the growers' warehouses. But the, 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 black character, the black characters are pawns collectively. Totally. The, white people. the women characters, by contrast, do have agency in this book. Um, Percy's wife, after he rapes her, leaves him and never speaks to him again. And you kind of think she's going to. She just actually never speaks to him mm-hmm. again. And his mistress... Um, Lucille Christian, the daughter of his friend, actually initiates the relationship with him, comes to him in this house in the night, and she's the one who kind of decides whether or not they're going to be together or not. I mean, did you that that struck me as kind of interesting? Those characters were were I, I thought I thought those were both strong portrayal. Well, not his wife so much. She's not a very strong character as a character. But. She's not. Although I felt his descriptions of the marriage were extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because it involves he, he he actually is very in love with his wife at the beginning in a certain way and is kind of enraptured by her and they're both playing these roles and then as he starts to get caught up in this violence there's sort of the rift opening up between them and there's this one moment where she wants to garden some certain flowers and he says no I'm not going to get you the flowers and it's this weird sort of trivial power moment in which kind of the ugliness of that's kind of emerging in him takes this form. So his, like, in, he just says no to her to be mean, to be pat, to exercise this power. And you start to see how his violence and his desire for power are kind of turned on her. And I thought that that was really well done. And then I also did love the character of Lucille, who is, for this period, pretty aggressive and adventurous because she also goes to visit him um, at Proudfit's um, as well, which is, you know, and kind of goes into his room in the night and um, she's... Proposes. Uh, yeah, she yeah. does. And she's kind of a um, an incredibly strong character and also has a lot of personality right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, in terms of her kind of positioning herself against both her father, who's kind of also awful in a lot of ways, but um, 
as she kind of gets what she wants out of the world. So she's she's definitely, I thought, a, a really intriguing and strong character. Let's I mean, talk, the, the marriage, I just want to say the marriage is really interesting because it's sort of like his frustration with his marriage is there from the start. And it's totally the opposite of his relationship with Lucille. Um, the the friend's daughter because with the wife there's almost no conversation and when he tries mm-hmm. to have conversation he can't quite he always ends up hating himself for not having managed to in any way connect to her you know and he doesn't really quite blame her but slowly he just feels like they have there's no connection she's proper and she's distant and he's trying to protect her and it's sort of an old southern womanhood kind of image right she, he's got her on a pedestal and and he would never tell her about whereas Lucille knows all his secrets she knows everything they're constantly when they talk it's like real conversation they have it's an like, honest relationship it's like friendship uh, at least as yeah. much as it is a love i mean they're really like close they're, well they've sort of because they only meet in the middle of the night for sex but they talk they right they they're this pretense of southern chivalry and courtesy and gallantry and so that's all that none of that applies they can right she says like oh come on yeah right she's she's sort of body uh in that way um she's she's and she gives it back to her father just as rough as he gives it to her you know and and yet she's pretty complex yeah (laughs) uh last topic i want to hit on is is to go back to the sort of question of the sort of economic relations in this society i mean i had a little bit of a kind of nightmare idea you could you know sort of there's an economics textbook version of this where you, where you say, oh, well, this, you know, cartel was formed, but it's, cartels don't work because people cheat and you have these two sides of price negotiation. And you, this is all uh, – the story is all explained by the uh, failure to, to have an actually free market. But, you know, it's sort of fascinating because as you say, it, it's, about, it's about economic relations as power relations, as politics, and these – people, these farmers, whose way of life is coming to an end. I mean, I think probably the larger economic picture is you couldn't be an, a tobacco farmer on that scale anymore because you, you couldn't make a consistent living at it. And probably what's going to happen to these people is, you know, they're going to have to move to the city and give, give up their farm. Their farms are going to get foreclosed on. So we're also seeing this sort of picture of economic change. Yeah, and I mean, I think there there's some analogies here with um, you know the large trajectory of the book or its concerns with all the king's men, which is to say that he he is really one of the few novelists we've got who can who really writes about people's political motivations and actions and how the sort of attraction of power, but also of organizing people and of responding to circumstances leads you sort towards demagoguery, uh, which is the story in All the King's Men. Um, and corruption. I mean, there's this famous, famous line from from Willie Stark, the demagogue in, in All the King's Men, where he's he's sort of saying everybody is is blackmailable. And he said, you know, man is conceived in sin yeah. and, and born in corruption, and he passeth from the stench of the ditty to the stink of the shroud. There is always something, you know. <laughs> and and it's like there is always something is a big thing for Penn Warren that 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 there's nobody who's kind of untainted. Um, once they get into political action, because you're doing things that are collective, you often get compromised. The objective, the idealism gets blurred by all the compromises made along the way. And that violence is, is very often um, what's available when people are frustrated with, you know, when, when a system is collapsing inward on itself. So you have an economy collapsing inward on itself. You have these people whose farms, it's all they've got. And if they're going to lose them, well, they're going to go down with a fight. Yeah, yeah, and I that I found yeah, just the like cl- the easiness um, with which they kind of slip into violence that it's always there right beneath the surface did kind of speak to today and have a kind of weird relevance. I also felt 
reading this book that it it sort of historicized something for me, which is that we think now about, let's say, the Trump voter at this sort of disenfranchised working class, maybe Southern, maybe Rust Belt, you know, They've, they're kind of like they're they're in this economic crisis. Their normal way of making a living or their forms of masculinity are being threatened and their forms of white masculinity are being threatened. But this book, you know, hearkening back to such an earlier time, they're already fit threatened in this book. That there was – we kind of get tempted to have this idea that there was this moment where, you know, there was sort of like this solid – we have this this idea that there was this past in which this – way of life was sort of secure and ascendant. And I just think it's interesting how far back this feeling of like insecurity and fragility and everything falling apart that Philip's talking about is actually always there. This continuity. Yeah. And it's there is, you know, as in all the King's Men a little bit, there's not really a left and a right. There is there are elements of socialism, there are elements of fascism, there is a mob. But in this book, the two sides in this war, it's political in the sense that you know, there's a senator and does he represent these this side or or the other side? But there's nothing we would recognize as ideological politics. No. The 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 association uses the rhetoric of solidarity and it sounds as, as Philip was saying, like a kind of union movement, but what we're seeing is people fighting for their economic interests. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're seeing also I mean and and, and to go further back in the history, there is this echo of the Civil War. It mm. pops up periodically. Um, that, you know, there was this time where we were also defeated and also thought we mm. would win. And and the Civil War guy, that's sort of his line. You know, yeah, it's looking good right now for the association, but I remember when it looked good in 62, <laughs> he says, you know, um, uh, quite clearly. He said it looked really good. It looked like we had the North licked then and uh, didn't turn out that way. So I'm ready for, you know, we, I'm not going to get too excited right now. And and you realize, right, you're also dealing with a entire population that that feels that it has been and is still reeling from defeat. Yes. Um, and, and whether that – it's not put in the context of slavery. It's simply the experience of defeat. And therefore, the power, it's not ideological. It's just raw. It's yeah. how do you how do you How do you get by? And that psychology of just being threatened, being like always being threatened. There, you're always your your life is sort of under this threat. Your farm is about to be burned. You might be like hung up by these strangers who come at night. You know, like there's the the threat, and and obviously the economic threat, which is very real in this book and very vivid. All right, so I think it's I think I uh, speak for both of you in saying we really like this book. Katie uh, began answering the question before I asked it. Does this book help you understand the world of Trumpism? I think with a with a uh, qualified yes. Philip, do you do you agree? I mean, should this book you should read it, but should it be on the Trump reading list? Um, yeah, I mean, it may not be on the um, the express train reading list, <laughs> but certainly if you want to take the Trump reading list local, and you should just be reading Penn Warren. Also, I mean, there, when I read a lot of him in college, there was a he, he wrote a lot of poems too, and I. I I didn't read as many of the poems, but I remember when I was flipping through one of the poetry anthologies being drawn by the title to one, which was Mad Young Aristocrat on Beach, which is a pretty great title. <laughs> and in that poem, it seemed to me there was a distillation of a lot of what he's writing about always, which said, his mother once said that he was sweet. Curse the bitch. It's power a man wants and like a black cloud now rises to his feet. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, people like me read all uh, all the King's Men maybe more than once. I've read it a couple of times, and yeah. people love that book. But I've never read anything else of his. So you know, this is this it wasn't a one off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was uh, a great friend, by the way, of Ralph Ellison. In fact, I think the Paris Review interview of either Ralph Ellison or of him is the two of them talking together. I can't remember. Maybe it's just the two of them talking together, but it's basically um, a fascinating conversation between the two of them when they were Rome fellows in the 50s together. That's something I would love to go and read. Uh, So that's it for our latest Trump book club. I want to thank Philip Gurevich and Katie Royfe for another great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, this is as good a time as any to announce our next book, which is Michelle Welbeck. Did I pronounce that right, Philip? I think so. Uh, His novel Submission, which is, well, I haven't read it. Have you read it yet? I kind of know what it's about. It's about the Islamization of of, uh, Europe, right? It's it's basically the National Front versus Islamization in in France and Islamization winning out. So we're going to give you we're going to give you four weeks, um, but please read it along with us. That that book is easily available, more easily available than than Knight Rider. Until we meet again, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.